0: Well, again, I invite you to take your Bibles with me. Let's turn together to the book of Nehemiah this morning, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to read chapter 1 this morning and set the scene in our hearts and minds as we prepare to go through a new Old Testament book in our study on Sunday mornings. We recently completed the book of Esther on Sunday evenings, and as a church, part of our rhythms, we regularly want to be looking at the whole council of God's Word. And you say, well, why would we want to do that, Lagrand? Not that anybody is saying that. But the preacher of God's Word, the pastor-shepherd, is charged with preaching the whole counsel of God's Word, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so we have a rhythm and a pattern here amongst many opportunities uh, to be exposed to the Word of God, to be studying in the Old Testament, and studying in the New Testament. So we open our Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 1 having concluded the book of Esther, and we move into a new Old Testament book that we've moved now to Sunday mornings, and we've moved our study through Matthew's gospel now to Sunday evenings. Beginning in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1, Nehemiah begins for us, the Spirit of God using him to write these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chisleph in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and in great reproach. Why is that? Well, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, "I, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please, O oh God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Notice the, just the declarative statement that is there as Nehemiah brings in his intercession of prayer, his own responsibility before the Lord in repentance. Both I, both me, and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, speaking to the children of Israel, the people of God, if you are unfaithful, then God speaking says, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as my dwelling place for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy and the sight of this man, speaking of King Artaxerxes, He says, concluding there, the final statement, for I was the king's cupbearer. Well, This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures, abides forever. How many of you have sat down for a family night or a movie and you've taken the time to just chill and relax and all of a sudden you turn on whatever it is, the movie that you're watching, and it hits the ground running with a bang smoke is in the air, obviously I'm describing an action-packed type of thriller, bullets are flying, and you're wondering what in the world is, is going on. Well, it's a storytelling strategy not only by filmmakers and directors to immediately rein in the viewer's attention, to begin to cause you to begin to ask questions about taking place, and then they will spend the rest of the movie or the show, answering those questions by going back and filling in the blanks. As we look here into Nehemiah chapter 1, we ask this question, we find in ourselves, "What is take, who's Nehemiah, right? Maybe to the extent that some of you, you have of Nehemiah, as you know someone named Nehemiah, uh, maybe your name's Nehemiah, or you remember a Sunday school teacher taking the time to give you a vignette, an overview, a lesson on Nehemiah. And that's limited to, though, your past, You're, when you were eight years old and you've not heard another thing about Nehemiah since then. I have no doubt as we broach the study of Nehemiah that there's a number of you that that has, has encompassed. Well, as we read Nehemiah chapter 1, our, our minds on a cursory level of reading the text have a number of questions. Who is Nehemiah and who is Hakaliah? Who is Hanani? One of the first things we realize is that these names are unusual. They're different. We don't know many people with these types of names. We ask all kinds of questions. And so the questions begin to flow. Who is in exile? What is exile? Why are walls important and why are they crumbled? If they are important, then why are they not important? Why are the gates burning with fire? Why is any of this relative, powerful to my life this week, today, right now, January, February the 11th, January, February the 11th, 2024. Well, those are all great questions. Here in our text, we are introduced to this godly man named Nehemiah who loves God. He loves the Lord. Nehemiah is a Jew who is in exile in Persia. He is a high-ranking official. We see there in verse 11 that he is the king's cupbearer. We're going to find that Nehemiah is a humble man, he is a bold man, he is a godly man who the Lord raises up and uses, and is an example even for us as the church, as believers, by what he leads God's people to do in his time and place. One of the things that stands out about Nehemiah and the flavor, the bent of his life is that he is so God-centered, In a world where we are tempted to promote self, in a world that worships self, in a day and age where Nehemiah's employer loves no one, King Artaxerxes loves no one more than self, Nehemiah's boss and who he looks at and who he deals with every single day is not his model. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is his God and his life shows it. Well, again, to be technical, we're going to just do some overview things as we introduce this book of Nehemiah, and we will not be doing this every Sunday. You will expect, come to expect in the coming weeks, standalone passages as we walk through segments of God's word. But I want to introduce this thought, of the idea, the basic questions that we have as we introduce the book of Nehemiah. The first is the author of the book. Split decisions abound all aware. We're, we're all around. We're not going to waste time on this, but it is believed to be either both Nehemiah as verse 1 says, the words of Nehemiah, or the fact that Ezra, the scribe, uh, author, not author of the book, was led of the Holy Spirit to write both the book of Ezra and incorporate Nehemiah's personal diary. so it's a both and not an either or. Ezra led of the Lord using Nehemiah's personal journal to, to, that he writes down these thoughts so that both are true. Ezra and Nehemiah, these things are not overall important. The most important thing is that the Holy Spirit has inspired this for us, for our learning and our admonition. Thinking of the author of Nehemiah. It will help us as we shift gears, as we walk through Nehemiah, moving back and forth, we will be moving into Ezra at times. And we'll say, why are we moving into Ezra? Well, Ezra was a peer, a contemporary of Nehemiah. Ezra was used in this time as well. And originally, before our English translations, this was considered one book. Ezra and Nehemiah were put together, and so initially Ezra bookended Nehemiah. You had the first part of the book of Ezra, then you would have Nehemiah grafted in, in the middle part, and then you have Ezra on the other side. And then in our more modern English translations, we have reduced Ezra to his own book, and Nehemiah to his own book. And so it's no problem just explaining as we move between the book of Ezra at times, and the book of Nehemiah. In the Bible, there are genres of Scripture. There are the wisdom passages. There are the the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. There are the Gospels. And as we look at the middle part of the Bible, there's what's known as the historical books. They are the history of really God zooming in by His Spirit, as we've seen in the book of Ruth, as we've seen in the book of Esther of God's overarching redemptive plan, His working plan, His providential plan of bringing about a Messiah and a Savior. But in these historical books, we see the time taken by the Holy Spirit to zoom in and to highlight personalities, people that God has raised up for His purposes, for the fulfillment of His will. We see God using Moses, Joseph, Daniel, Haggai, Malachi, Isaiah, Ruth, and Esther, these lives are real. These are real people. As we see here in Nehemiah chapter 1, these events take place at a certain time and place. The Bible is not just a, a fact book or a mythical book. It's not a storytelling book. I think we need to be careful when we come to Scripture. It's not just there's a good story here in the book of Nehemiah. No, this is facts, this happens in uh, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chisleph, in the 20th year. And You say, well, why are you taking the time to say that? Well, John Adams, our second president, said facts are very stubborn things. For those who would like to dismiss the Bible, these things matter. Luke brings it into his account in the book of Acts when he writes to Theophilus and he says, These things we have known, seen, heard, and touched, these are real things. The Savior, the resurrected Savior, was seen, heard, and felt. John wrote in 1 John as well These things which we have heard, our eyes have heard, our our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, our hands, John says, have handled concerning the word of life. So as we come to Nehemiah, we're not taking off, hopefully. We're trying to keep it from being a... Why preach Nehemiah? We don't want the Bible for us at Grace to be a dusty book. We want our people to say, we know what Nehemiah is about. When we come to Malachi or Zechariah or anywhere else, we don't want to have the common refrain of like, what is that? How is that? Who is that? We want to know because the Bible is God's word. If it's God's word, it means it's inspired. And if it's inspired, it means it necessitates that every word, every line be preached. Why do we do what we do? Well, that's why. As we look at Nehemiah, we're finding this is a a historical book, and it's the last of the historical books. And we see a scene where God's people are in a very momentous point. I want to take a little bit of time here to bring us up to speed on what is happening in the life of of God's people. To understand the scene here, this history book of Nehemiah, we need to look backwards into the Old Testament, into the history of Israel. just want to give some of the highlights. You know that Moses, God's servant, led God's people out of Egypt. Joshua, his servant, led them fully into the promised land. Moses was not able to see that to completion. Ultimately, the the, the tribes would settle and make their boundaries known and become peoples of millions in the number. They had their landmarkings and their areas, and then they desired to have a king. Saul would become Israel's first king, followed by David and then Solomon and then the sons of Solomon. And God was allowed the fact that they desired a king. He ultimately gave them a king in the form of David, David being a man after God's own heart. But you could say it like this, Israel foolishly asked for a king when God was their king. And so God sometimes, in His judgment, gives us just exactly what we ask for. It's a warning for us. The nation of Israel prospered under the hand of David, David acquired and put together all of the supplies and the things he, he staged, if you will, the things that Solomon would need. And then Solomon was able to take the additional materials and to build upon that foundation to build a house for God, a temple. David was not allowed to build it because he was a man of war. He was a man of bloodshed. And so God said that that privilege is not for you. It will be for another. God raised up Solomon to follow David and he built the temple and Fortunately, during Solomon's reign, the wisest man who ever lived was also one of the most foolish men who's ever lived. Because in his wisdom, he spurned that wisdom and being able to give us the wisdom literature, and yet sometimes those who know the most are the most disobedient. It's oxymoronic, isn't it, that that we who are exposed to so much truth, even here week after week after week, but yet as we examine our hearts and lives, we know the truth, but there's a disconnect between sin patterns in our life and the truth we know. Solomon, the one who gave for us in Proverbs 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, heard the siren call of women, foreign women. And the emphasis there is not on the foreign, but it's on the foreign women's gods. The very concern that God had about His people intermarrying with the nations was their patterns of worship. Their false gods, and that is exactly what took place in the life of Solomon. So Solomon, who had the most unbelievable privilege to build the temple for Yahweh, also gave his heart over to many, 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 many women and allowed there to be places, like the high groves, the high places, altars, and idols to false gods. He began to compromise spiritually because of this, and so that when he died, the nation was poised for t- turmoil in the coming days. Israel would go on to be divided. One unified Israel would be divided, and civil war erupted in the nation. So I'm taking the time to walk us through. I want to bring us on the same page because sometimes you will hear in passing, in the life of teaching and preaching in the church, you will hear about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And yet we regularly talk about the the Hebrew children, the children of Israel, the people of God. And so sometimes that can be confusing. Like, what are we, sometimes is there one group or is there two groups? So, just as an onboarding here, the children of Israel were divided into two kingdoms the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. The northern kingdom being Israel, and the southern kingdom being comprised of Judah and Benjamin. Now, in the very middle of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. The people of God had built the temple. We saw that. I mentioned that just a moment ago. And for the children of God, the temple building was not just a building. It wasn't even a church building. It alone, you could say. Of course, the church wasn't in place yet. We understand that. It wasn't just another building. It wasn't just an average place to go for worship. The temple building there in the very heart of Jerusalem represented God's presence. It represented His name It represented his power. It represented his glory. It was the pride of the people of God. His name dwelled there. And when they came to worship him, he was there. It was a place of worship. And around not only the temple, and then around the city were the walls that also spoke to his glory, his power, and his renown. We'll look more at walls next week and the significance of them and why it's even important and why Nehemiah is brought back by the Spirit of God to help resurrect them and to raise them. But we'll just say this, it's not hard to imagine why walls are important. But for the children of Israel, walls were much more than being important or for physical security. I got a call this week from someone that I know very dearly, love very dearly, and they came home and their front door had been kicked in. They'd been gone, Many of you know that sinking feeling of your precious space, your home, and seeing that violated. It feels weird, it feels different, and this was a very traumatic thing for those that I know dearly and love. So we walked through that and talked through that. I could not help but think with the walls of Jerusalem destroyed, it was demoralizing to the children of Israel. It was demoralizing to the people of God. It was a part of the judgment of God. So the children of Israel were split apart. And because their hearts were carried away as they continued to worship false gods that initially in seed form were brought into the nation by Influence in leaders. And by the way, we will talk about leadership in the book of Nehemiah. And you want to see the effect of leadership. You see Solomon's poor leadership led the people of God, allowed the people of God not to rise any higher than their leadership, but to follow their leadership and their hearts being taken over by idols and false worship. Because of this, God told his children many times, if you wander away from me, I will bring judgment upon you. If your heart wanders from me, if you abandon me for idols, you can expect the chastening, loving, perfecting hand of God in your life. And I want to make that very clear. In our society today, our society, and I will not keep going this direction, but I must make this point. We view punishments as unloving. We contrast hands of discipline, we contrast hearts of discipline as surely that can't be loving. I'm not saying any of you do that, but we live in a people in a certain time and place and people in their minds just can't today, just can't process that discipline would be a part of true love and yet our hearts know better, don't we? We know that nothing of lasting eternal importance is accomplished if there are not boundaries that are put there in love. Where do we get that? Well, eternity, speaking of Solomon, Solomon wrote for us that eternity is certainly wrapped up in the hearts of all men. Romans 1 tells us that by general revelation, all men know there is a God in their consciences and in their hearts, and yet for many we squelch that in whatever forms that may be. Listen, there's only one true God, and He's not just a God of love on the cross and saving us from sin, redeeming us as His people, our God of gracious love has a perfecting love that perfects us, that calls us, that chastens us. We see that in the life of Israel. It may be hard for us to wrap our mind around, but part of God's judgment against His people was that for the northern tribes, the, tri- the section that is the, the children of Israel, Judgment was brought against them, the upper ten tribes, through the form of the Assyrians. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and invaded Israel. And the ten tribes were scattered and taken off through captivity and deportation and scattered like sand in the wind. Then God brought judgment to the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in 605 B.C. through the form of not the Assyrians but the Babylonians. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you'll remember that the book of Daniel zooms in in this very way and recounts the Hebrew young men and others who were taken into the Babylonian captivity in the form of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is that invasion. Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, actually invaded Judah three times over a period of time. In our documents, it's known as the Babylonian Captivity, and in 586, he came and through his army destroyed the temple. In fact, Second Chronicles thirty-six verse eighteen records for us the fact not only that the temple was destroyed, but he robbed the temple of all that was God's vessels and its cups and the decorations and all the beautiful things that made it God's temple. Not His presence, of course, but the physical, tangible things. Second Chronicles thirty-six eighteen records this, and it says all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord. And the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all of these he took to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God. He, notice here, they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. He burned all of its palaces with fire, and he destroyed all of its precious possessions. Here we have recorded for us in a cross-reference just an example of this devastating judgment of God that God allowed his children to go through in the southern kingdom. And it helps us to understand as the Babylonians come and they take away from Jerusalem and into what is now modern-day Iran and what is, we'll see in just a moment, Persia and Babylon, Iraq and Iran, but what is now modern-day Iraq and Iran. It helps us to understand who Nehemiah is and why is he there and not here. In fact, the fall of Jerusalem, the judgments of God help us to understand many of these historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, as we've just seen in Today, if I have time, and next week, we will make a connection from the book of Esther as we will see that Esther is the stepmother of Artaxerxes, the one that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to. And that is quite a connection as we see God's hand working through these pagan rulers and making connections and how the Holy Spirit of God helps us to see how He's always working and advancing His purposes and His will. Turn with me now to Psalm 137. And if we want to know what is the mental state, the spiritual state of the people of God, we need to look no further than Psalm 137. And it's a heartbreaking scene. It's always heartbreaking when sin wrecks lives, homes, kingdoms. And what we find in Psalm 137 is a psalm that is written, and you'll notice the superscription gives to us what is the heart of the people, how they're being mocked. How they're being laughed at. Where is your God? And it's always a wicked thing and a shameful thing as we prayed just a few moments ago when those who know us, who know what we profess to be, say, where's that reality in your life? Where is the the God you say you believe? Why are you complaining to us about whether your God will provide for you? And you're acting like you have no God, but we know you say there's a God. Yet your life doesn't look any different than our life. You're not living as if your God reigns. You're not living as if your God hears and answers prayer. If there is a God, where is your God? Well, Psalm 137 reflects that. Notice that the language is. It says, a longing for Zion in a foreign land. This is the heart of people saying, where is our God and where is our home? And where is the glorious temple? Verse 1 of Psalm 137, the psalmist writes, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, and we wept, When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. By the way, just hit pause there. God's people have always been a people of worship. God's people are a worshiping people. God's people are a singing people. So it's distinctive to hear that the psalmist portrays for us that they've lost the hanging of the harps upon the willow means they've lost their song. Part of how we give glory to God and how part of what our ministry is to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord is when we offer up our praises right back to Him. It's a tragedy when we lose our, our song. The hanging of the harps on the willow is a public demonstration that to lose your song is to lose your hope in God. Now, verse three, it says, For there Those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. Sing, sing for us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How beautiful this is that they would know it. How awful this is that they're making fun of them for it. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundations. We'll we'll find our way, making back now to Nehemiah chapter 1. We see a glimpse in some of these passages of Scripture that narrate for us and further reinforce not only what took place, but the spiritual and mental aspects of God's people as they are being judged for their pagan worship and their hearts being lured away by idols, not repenting as God in his forbearance and his long suffering. As Paul describes, it is the goodness and the long suffering of God which leads us to repentance. Well, God's people did not. And here they're longing for the Lord. Well, Babylonian takes the people away into three different deportations. But then in 539 BC, here's our key connection Babylon itself fell to King Cyrus of Persia. God even judges those who he leads to judge his own people. And Cyrus' handling of the people of Israel, the, Jew, the, the southern kingdom, was much more kind, if you want to put it that way, and humane than Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar's was to take the brightest and the best and to further exploit them, brainwash them, and advance his own glory and his own kingdom. I can't wait to study the book of Daniel and the future. It's a glorious book about how God humbles Nebuchadnezzar in a public display because of his heart being lifted up in pride. Nebuchadnezzar loved to raise cities, raise, R-A-Z-E, with salt and burn them to the ground and sow it with salt to show that he brought absolute Power and devastation, and would raise things with no hope. He helped to demoralize the people, brainwash the best, and use them in his own administration. Cyrus did not operate that way. He was a much more pragmatic ruler, Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus would send people back and develop their economies, encourage them to go pursue their own gods and worship their own gods because he wanted to tax them. He he understood that. uh, Armies need taxes and that he needed money to advance his kingdom. So he went about it a different way. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Cyrus, even though he was kinder to God's people, would be used to the Lord to send people back to the homeland. Cyrus became God's instrument to work in the lives of his people. In fact, Isaiah 44, 28 says this, God, speaking of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built And to the temple your foundation shall be laid. We see that even kings have a king over them. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it however he will. Under Cyrus's being raised up, the Jews were able to go back to Jerusalem after being spread about under the leadership of three key men. I'm going to move quickly here. We're almost through the technical part, so thank you for your patience and thank you for bearing with me. We need to know these names. Under Cyrus' reign, three key men were allowed to take Jews back to Jerusalem for the restoration of these things. Group one went underneath a man named Zerubbabel. An unusual name, isn't it? Zerubbabel. Group two, 80 years later, would go under a man named Ezra, as we've mentioned just a moment ago. And then the third group would go underneath a man named Nehemiah. In 538, we see that the people of God began the work of restoration, but they quit as soon as they started because of persecution, because of opposition. No sooner do they get they get started, they quit, and they were demoralized. In 520, Haggai and Zechariah were prophets of God who rebuked the people of God for their lack of resolve and for their lack of courage. And ultimately, in 516 B.C., the temple of God was restored. That is to say, rebuilt. That is to say, completed. There's just one problem. Without walls, it meant nothing. The, the people of God were scared to go there. To not have walls meant no protection from other Cyruses and other Nebuchadnezzar's. So The city ultimately remained deserted. The temple stood there as an empty building. I'm sure there were few around, but it was unprotected. In fact, because it did not have walls, many Jews refused to go back home. They refused to migrate, pretty much being at ease. I'm using the phrase at ease in Zion. No, they weren't at ease in Zion, but you get the point. They were at ease really in Babylon and ease in Persia. And they're like, why would we, why would we go back? We're just comfortable here. We're assimilated here. Life is, is good for us. Well, many Jews refused to go back. If you remember in our study of Esther, we questioned why was it that Mordecai and Esther were just almost stiff-arming God's people. They didn't want to be known as Jews at the beginning of the book of Esther. They were comfortable. It's almost as if they had not come out and sided publicly with the people of God. And that expresses the heart of many of the Jews who were comfortable and refused to go back. When 486 B.C., A man named Xerxes, Ahasuerus, who we saw in the book of Esther, took the throne of of, of, um, of Persia. And he chose Esther to be his queen in 479 B.C. And as we come now to the book of Nehemiah, we find that there is a second Artaxerxes, but it is not the same Artaxerxes of Esther chapter 1 or the book of Esther. It's now his son. Artaxerxes here in the book of Nehemiah is the son who helped assassinate his own father his stepmother is believed to be Esther if they if we have these things correct we believe them to be correct and it's believed that Esther and the Jews going back used her authority and her influence to help mobilize some of these things as we looked at God's hand in raising up Mordecai and Esther but there's just a lot of it that we can't know but it's believed that she played a role but there's just one problem the wall needs to be built now, with this background in mind, I want us to do a quick just front off, as we walk, front off as we walk through the book of Nehemiah. I want us to highlight some of the names that we will see in Nehemiah and some of the themes and some of the doctrine of what this book will teach us about our great God. We are obviously introduced to Nehemiah. Enough about him. We'll come back to him and we'll talk about him plenty. We are also introduced in chapter 8, verses one, at chapter eight verse 1 through the, chapter 12 to Ezra and his role and how Ezra led the second group of exiles to Jerusalem, and how he worked with Nehemiah as Israel's priest and scribe. It's going to be important to note positions and roles here. Ezra was the scribe. Ezra was the priest. And maybe we could best summarize Ezra's ethos, his life, and his character. If you will, turn with me briefly just one book back to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. And I absolutely love this verse. We can't keep going. But I want to highlight for you the godly man that Ezra was. And then I want to contrast that back to Nehemiah, who was also a godly man, but he wasn't Ezra. So Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 highlights for us what you could say is really the direction of what people knew him as and why we see him at work in the way that God uses him in Nehemiah. Notice what's uh, given to us about him in chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart... To seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So what you know, God always has His men who their primary duty is to study the Word of God and to teach the Word of God. And we won't go any further in that direction, but just notice with me what the Holy Spirit records for us about the heart of Ezra, in the opening part of that verse, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord. I just want to say this quickly as we look at the role that Ezra plays in these projects, not only of the group he led back in number two, group number two, but then the role he plays in the life and influence of Nehemiah. Ezra is a scribe. You can say it like this: Ezra is a formal religious man. Ezra is a priest in that sense. But sometimes when we study these biblical characters, Many men, many of you men, many men everywhere may say, but I'm not an Ezra. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor teacher. And I want you to know, that's okay. And I want to encourage you this morning, as we look at Nehemiah and answer this question this way, neither was Nehemiah. But that is not to say he wasn't a godly man used of the Lord for his purposes and his kingdom. That's a key distinction. I want want you to hear me when we look at Nehemiah. We're not talking about, in our language today, a pastor. We're talking about a layman. We're talking about a godly man. And when you hear me say a layman, in our language of modern day vernacular, don't hear me say something as second best or second class. You will never hear me say that. That will never come out of my lips. I think you know that but I want to make sure we make that distinction so that you can then be encouraged at what we see in the life of Nehemiah. Who are we going to see in the book of Nehemiah? Well, we'll see Nehemiah, Ezra. We'll also see two men with very unusual names, Sanballat and Tobiah. Just very quickly, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, and his main goal is to simply discourage the people through psychological warfare, if you will, through verbiage, through conversation, through tactics, He's just simply a clog in the wheel. He's an evil man. He's a wicked man, no doubt. But he brings about, along with his friend Tobiah, who's Tobiah? Well, he's an Ammonite official who publicly mocks all that they're trying to do. Chapter 2, verse 10 introduces us to these men, both Sanballat and Tobiah. And it answers the question, does God's Word have anything to say to us about people who are negative, and I don't mean negative in the simplistic sense of negative, uh, but are a hindrance to the work of God? who God is very clearly leading and working, and are there people in your life, as you see God advancing your family or or calling you to specific things, and do you have voices or people in your life who are constantly trying to talk you out of it? No doubt. Does God's word speak to it? Well, we'll see examples of how do we press through, how do we press on, how do we follow the God of Israel, and how do we move forward? Well, not pulling that out of a thin air or out of a hat, we we find that in the book of Nehemiah. There are themes that we see like leadership, prayer, more about that in just a moment, renewal and revival. Again, leadership, prayer, renewal and revival. What is revival? What is biblical revival? We hear lots about revival, but what does it look like? We're going to see what biblical revival is. And it's when God's people have one heart, one mind, and one spirit being motivated for the glory of God alone, as we sang this morning, Gloria, Gloria, glory to God alone. That's it. That that encapsulates it to move forward in faith for His glory. It doesn't happen, though, without leadership. And it doesn't happen without prayer. And it doesn't happen without humble dependence upon God to lead. And that's what you call renewal, revival. Now, I want to say this quickly. Nehemiah is the biblical handbook for leadership. It's amazing. It's not the only book in the Bible that talks about leadership. So I just want you to know from the beginning, if some of you are wondering, well, how's Lagrange going to approach this book? The way I will not approach it is simply a leadership manual. I will not not extract from it in a way that secularists could extract from it biblical principles on leadership. So let me establish that number one. This sermon series will not be driven by the leadership of Nehemiah. Our goal, let me just explain for you, our goal is to exposit the text, apply the text, and constantly see how this points us to Christ and the gospel. And in doing that, we will not be afraid to highlight the leadership that we see from Nehemiah. So I'm going to say that again. It will not be a book about leadership alone. But by the same token, I am not going to be so wooden that I don't take the time to practically apply what we see here as God uses this man among the people of God. Some key doctrines that we'll see here in our study is, number one, just the doctrine of God's Word. Very quickly, next week as we begin with the prayer of Nehemiah, What we quickly find about Nehemiah is that he is, as Colossians 3.16 describes for us, where Paul commands the church at Colossae, be filled with the word of God. Where Paul says, let the word of God to the church at Colossae dwell in you richly. psalmist says, your word, O God, I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. We could give verse after verse of what Nehemiah is fulfilling in that sense. When we look at the life of Nehemiah, he points us to our, I'm not going to say true and better Nehemiah, it's not that explicit, so I'm not going to make connections where there's not connections, but I'll just simply try to say this. He points us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was absolutely saturated with Scripture, who affirmed and supported the Word of God, prayed the Word of God, quoted the Word of God, preached the Word of God. God's Word is very quickly evident upon the scenes of the text And it shows us how absolutely saturated Nehemiah is with God's Word. In fact, when we know God's Word and it controls us, there's really only one response, and that is to obey it, to follow it. You could say it like this. God's Word was the fuel source for Nehemiah and his love for God and his passion by God. I'm going to say it another way. Confidence comes. How do we walk in the fear of the Lord in our lives? Well, confidence comes to give a... Not an inspired summary, but just a helpful summary. Confidence comes from being both prepared and supported. And Nehemiah was just that. We'll see how he uses the king to to guide him and to give him what he needs. But listen, he was both prepared and supported, not by Ahasuerus slash Xerxes, but by the word of God. Long before the moment came, much like Daniel, who when his testing came and when the trial came, Daniel didn't scratch his head and say, this is quite a, this is quite a, I I need to spend some time getting the mind of the Lord. No, Daniel was already seeking the mind of the Lord. He already knew the word of God and he was ready for the moment. That's what we see with Nehemiah. Nehemiah immediately hears of the news, and his heart is struck by the Spirit of God, and it's connected to the Word of God. And God's Word prepared Nehemiah for the moment. And we see that in what he prays, slash Sunday school class. You'll say, LeGrand, in our small group we just studied through praying the Bible, why didn't you show us Nehemiah's prayer? And the reason is, is that I've waited till now. <laughs> Nehemiah is maybe the best example of praying the Bible. And yet, can't spoil everything. So, I've waited till now to to begin to pull out Nehemiah's example of praying the scriptures. We're gonna see the theme of the Word of God. We're also gonna see the theme of prayer and the role that prayer plays in Nehemiah's life. In fact, his model prayer given to us kind of gives us what we call the ACTS way of praying: adoration, confession thanksgiving, supplication. Where did that come from? How many of you guys have ever heard of praying with the acronym of ACTS being your God? I'm just curious. Well, that didn't come out of nowhere. It comes from, for one example, Nehemiah's walk with God, his prayer life. And we're gonna see it in multiple places. He adores in his prayer. He thanks God in his prayer. He confesses his sin. We saw in the scripture reading this morning, he confessed not only their sin, in your sin, he confesses his sin. And he also uses we, us, and our, and my Father. Friends, I'm just going to say this. If we're going to see biblical revival and biblical renewal, we, the, the, the you has to become us. And you has to become we. And the y'all has to become all of us. You get the idea. There's got to be a seeing of ownership and a pleading with God to work on behalf of the people of God. and I think we'll see that as we walk through it. Prayer provides Nehemiah with a perspective and it widens his view, his horizons as he says in verse 4, the God of heaven. And friends, instance, I just want you to know when you begin with the God of heaven, whatever problem it is you're facing is very small. When you begin with the God of heaven, the God of earth, the Xerxes, our Xerxes is not so big anymore. And friends, the place to begin in our prayers as Jesus instructed his disciples, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus instructs that in Matthew 6. Nehemiah is doing that. We see themes of obedience. We see themes of encouragement. We see themes of opposition. But I want to conclude this morning with a, with a question. There's so much we see, and I'm, I'm not just trying to give you a data dump, I promise. But we need to touch on this before we move in to our exposition of the Scriptures. And the question I want us to answer this morning is this. A very simple outline, or just a simple question is this. What kind of person does God use? And I want us to consider that just for a few moments here in conclusion. And we're in conclusion now. What kind of person does God use? I think when we think about that question, we think of what we consider spiritual Christians, and we say spiritual as if like we're not spiritual, as if spiritual is something different than a Christian. Or we'll say super spiritual. Let's add that adjective to it. Or we think of men like we saw this morning in Sunday school, George Mueller, men that were used of God in extraordinary ways, Ways of outpouring and power, and we put them on another level. Nehemiah is up here. George Mueller is up here, but it's just uh, I'm just I'm just right here, and it's just me. So asking this question: What kind of person does God use? Well, look with me in the text. Nehemiah chapter one verse one. Notice how mundane and ordinary the Holy Spirit of God leads this text to open. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Then jump down to verse 11, and he says, for I was the king's cup bearer. Just want you to know, when we look at number one, the son of Hakaliah, what kind of man does God use? Well, listen, Nehemiah, when we look at his life, was two things. He was ordinary, and he was godly. He was ordinary, and he was godly. How is he ordinary? Who's Hakaliah? Exactly. Who's Hechaliah? In fact, we could go on to say, who's Nehemiah? Because outside of the book of Nehemiah, we don't see these names anywhere else in Scripture repeated, like Moses, like Noah, like David. You get the idea. It's in this book alone. The only thing that some of you may poke a hole at is in Hebrews 11, we see descriptions of how God used Nehemiah. There may be some passages there that refer to the book or the life of Nehemiah. It's here that we see just an ordinary man under a pagan king living an ordinary life with a successful job. But listen, Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not of the tribe of, that you could focus on when you think of those who serve in more formal capacities. Nehemiah has no pedigree, no royal blood. All Nehemiah was was a believer. All Nehemiah did was fear the Lord. He was ordinary in the sense that Ezra, it's told to us, was a scribe. Ezra was a man of the book. Ezra was a leader. But Ezra wasn't the only leader. Who's Nehemiah? Oh, he's just ordinary. Secondly, I want us to see not only was he ordinary, I want to read to you just quickly an example from a a, a commentary that I have on Nehemiah, and this is by Stephen Davey, and he says this. He says, today we have lost sight of what it takes to qualify a man or a woman for the role of restorer or rebuilder. When we think of people that God uses, popularity, connections, personality, experience, These all come to mind and these things have replaced the necessary quality that shines in the life of this ordinary man. And this missing qualification that makes an ordinary person extraordinary is character. Ordinary men that are used of God. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, the Spirit of God says this: Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now, and take note, and seek in her open squares if you can find a man, if there is one who does, notice here, justice, who seeks truth. Well, look no further than Nehemiah. What other cross-reference? Ezekiel 22:30. Spirit of God says this, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall, who would stand in the gap before me, dot, dot, dot. But I found none. As we look at ordinary men, and as we look at Nehemiah, we need to make the connection. Nehemiah is not all the things we falsely maybe characterize or incorrectly characterize. We need to see Nehemiah as he, as he really is. And in seeing him as he really is, It's encouraging to us. It builds us up. It strengthens us and points us to our heavenly father. Secondly, we find that Nehemiah was not only ordinary. We find that he was a godly man. And the reason I emphasize this, lest you think I'm being overly semantic, is I'm using godly instead of Nehemiah was a leader. And I believe that I'm right here. I believe I'm following the spirit of God. Am I rightly dividing the text to make this distinction? We cannot and we must not make Nehemiah simply a leadership manual, a how-to manual to beef up our uh, own initiatives and our own lives and to make us feel good in a a pragmatic, principle-driven, if you will, approach. When we look into the text, I want to make the connection that Nehemiah was not only ordinary, but Nehemiah was godly. And one of the mistakes that people make as they come to this book is they reduce it to leadership. And As we look at Nehemiah, we find that he was godly first. And being godly meant by necessity, he was a leader. So I want to make this connection. You can be a leader and not be godly. But you cannot be godly and not be a leader. Another way we can look at it like this is, Nehemiah was a godly man. And the reason God used him was because of his fear of the Lord. And God equipped him as a godly man and his calling as a man to raise him up for such a time as this and to show us what this looks like and how God works in a powerful way. Nehemiah is a leader and a godly man who has a passion for God's glory and renown. Nehemiah was just an ordinary man who loves God's work. Nehemiah was an ordinary man who was a man of prayer. Nehemiah was an ordinary man who was a leader. This is what I mean when I say godly. Men, just very quickly this morning, and this is not limited to men, but I must address us. I just want to remind you, this is not the main thrust of the message. If you are a man, God has called you to lead. God has called you to be godly. And if you say, well, I don't know how to lead. I didn't have a father who led me very well. You do. You have a heavenly father. And just like Nehemiah, we know nothing about Nehemiah's father other than that his name was Hakaliah. And just like Nehemiah immediately begins to look to the God of heaven, you can look to the God of heaven as well. And you can find strength in walking in the fear of the Lord. Today, we understand the full, the full canon of Scripture. You find your assurance and your establishment and your identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will call you and He will equip you to fulfill His purpose for your life as you find your identity. And establishment, the word escapes my mind, you get what I'm saying, in Christ and in His gospel. I want to encourage you, if you are a man here this morning... To look to Christ for that shoring up and that strengthening up and to hear the call that wherever you are, whatever needs to be rebuilt, I'm not going to over-personalize the text, you can begin afresh and anew by the grace of God and by the gospel of God. Daniel chapter 11 verse 32 tells us that in the fear of the Lord, the fear, in the fear of the Lord and those who fear the Lord will do mighty strong exploits for his glory and for his honor and we see Nehemiah fulfilling just that. I want us to conclude this morning by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. And as we conclude this introduction to the book of Nehemiah, as we've made points of emphasis about his ordinariness, his godliness, I want to encourage our hearts to the Lord. And answer this question fully, what is the kind of person that God used that I asked at the beginning? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Look now at verse 26. Are you one of those foolish, foolish ones who believed? If you're a born-again Christian walking in newness of life, let me answer that question for you. Yes, you are. Church, we're the, we're the laughingstock of the world. Are we? Or are we cozy with the world? We're, we're foolish in the eyes of the world. Or are we? Have we so made friends with the world that with our methods and our dumbing down of God's character, our reducing of truth, and our minimizing of the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, are we good with the world? Now, if you're familiar with our teaching and preaching here, you know what we mean by that. If you're new here, you may wonder, well, that sounds abrasive. Well, come ask me afterwards and I'll try to fill in the gaps for you. But you understand what I mean. When we live faithfully to the gospel and its power, it's inexplicable to the world who can't understand these things. Verse 26, Paul reminds the church of this. He says, "...for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen." and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it, that it is written, as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul reminds the church of who they are in Christ and why God is using them. And when we look at Nehemiah and remind ourselves of these facts, who does God use? He uses ordinary people who have seen their need for the gospel. He uses people who have humbled themselves and repented of their sins and turned from their wicked ways and believed in their heart and confessed with their mouth. And Jesus Christ is not, notice here, not just their Savior alone. He's their Lord. They've bowed the knee to Him. They follow Him. Their life evidence is that. And the glory of God is their fuel and their aim. Well, Here's the good news. What kind of person does God use when the glory of God is your aim? You found that answer. You found the answer to that question. When you look around the world today, the glory of God is not on most kings' agendas, presidents for that matter, governors, mayors. The glory of God is not in the movers, shakers, and influencers' agendas, TikTok virals, you name it, posts, whatever. But to those whose hearts and eyes and minds are enthralled and wonder at the God of heaven, well, then that's the person. Regardless of what you do, that's the person that God uses. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as a church family, as we begin this new study. Father, that you would use it in the life of our church. We, We haven't come to this passage or this text hastily, forcefully. Father, you know my heart. I have put it off. I've waited. We feel now is the time in prayer and just seeking the mind of the Lord to walk verse by verse through this text. Lord, we pray that you would take your word, plant it deep in us, and that it would bring about fruit that is something that will remain that you'll help us to chew on what we've heard this morning, that you'll help us to look with eyes of faith at Christ and treasure his atoning work for us, that you'll remind us of the call of God upon our lives, whether pastor or not, whether priest or cupbearer, Lord, that we all are to live for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.